Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we count it such a privilege to call you our Father. And we thank you so much for Jesus and all that he's done for us in this Advent season. We want to remember uh, him as our Savior. We ask that you will send your spirit to be with us today as we study your word, that we'll draw closer to you and reflect and reveal you more fully in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing, that's number 11 in the uh, quarterly, the book of Romans. And the title this week is called The Elect. And the memory verse is out of Romans 11.1. 1, and it says the following. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And then read the first two paragraphs in the lesson. It says, this week's lesson covers Romans 10 and 11 with a focus especially on chapter 11. It's important to read both chapters in their entirety in order to continue to follow Paul's line of thinking. These two chapters have been and remain a focal point of much discussion. One point, however, comes clearly through them all, and that is God's love for humanity and his great desire to see all humanity saved. There is no corporate rejection of anyone for salvation. Romans 10 makes it very clear that there is no difference between Jew and Greek. All are sinners and all need God's grace as given to the world through Jesus Christ. This grace comes to all, not by nationality, not by birth, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus, who died as the substitute for sinners everywhere. Roles may change, but the basic plan of salvation never does. I think that was very well summarized of what we're going to talk about today. I, I, I think that really encapsulated the key points that, that I think I've talked to Christians around the circle Sometimes we get confused in these chapters and have confused ideas. So let's see if we can clarify as we go through today. Is anyone excluded from heaven because of nationality, race, or ethnic group? Is anyone included in salvation because of nationality, race, or ethnic group? It's important to recognize that. There are actually Christians who don't realize that. Do you agree that God has not rejected any group of people from salvation because they belong to that group? Do you, does that mean, though, that there is a group of people, ethnic group, genetic group of people, who are included in salvation just because they have a certain ancestry? If God has not rejected anybody from salvation because of race or genetics, does that mean he also has not rejected them for some mission? Or may they be still be included in salvation, but have been rejected for a mission? Did God call King Saul to be the first king of Israel? Did God not only later reject King Saul, but all of King Saul's children from being rulers of Israel? Does, does that mean King Saul's children were rejected from salvation? You see, there's the distinction. We need to make that distinction very clear. King Saul was called for a purpose. He failed to fulfill the purpose God called him for. He and his children were rejected for it. David was brought in instead. But his children were still open for salvation, not just not for the mission of being the ruler of Israel. And many people confuse those. If you're rejected for a mission, then you're rejected for salvation. Or if you're called for a mission, then you're called for salvation. It's it's different. What about the Jewish people today? Were they called by God for a mission? Mm -hmm. Yes, they clearly were. What was their mission that God called the children of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob to fulfill? 
the Israelites? What was their mission? To teach the world. Teach the world what? How to, how to do animal sacrifices? No. How to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath? What was their primary evangelistic mission? For what purpose? Show who he really was. Show who he was for what purpose? Restoration of the healings the rest of the world. To save the world, restoration of healing, yes, yes. Were they preparing for some event, though? Were they called to prepare the world, to teach the truth about God, to help change hearts and minds, to prepare for an event? Yes, their mission was to prepare the world for the advent. So that we'd receive, like the Magi and the shepherds. The whole world should have been like the Magi and the shepherds, right? Coming to worship him. That was their mission. As an organization, as a nation, they were to be a nation of priests to bring all the world to worship and prepare to receive the Messiah. Yes? Anybody disagree with that as their mission? Did they fulfill their mission? No. Are they rejected from salvation because they didn't fill that, fulfill that mission? No. I'm going to make that, hammer that point. No, they're not. Are they rejected, though, as a nation, as an exclusive group to be God's agencies on earth to evangelize the world? Yes, they are. According to the Bible, does the ethnic group, biological descent of Israel as a nation, have any end-time corporate role to play? Most Christians say yes. That's why there's so much rabid support in America for the nation of Israel among Christian groups. The SDA church, however, says no. There's a big split between evangelical Christianity and SDA church on the role of Israel at the end of time. So what is the underlying difference between these two views, and which do you believe is most consistent with Scripture and God's character and design laws? Okay, let's, let's ask some questions. What's, what's the basis of salvation? Uh, it's, very, it's, it's a kind of a rhetorical question. Everybody knows Jesus Christ is the base of salvation. And we, is salvation different for Jews than non-Jews? No difference. That, that's also disputed. There are many evangelical theologians who teach that Jews are saved through animal sacrifices. Still? I could give you the, the quotes and the references. In Old Testament times, in Old Testament times, they were saved through, through animal sacrifices. And since Jesus, though, it's salvation through Jesus. So they would say that. But in Old Testament times, they, they must not have read Hebrews. Hebrews says that animal sacrifices were never able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. There were only ordinances and, 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 uh, and, and ceremonies to pointing towards the larger reality of Jesus Christ. Shadows. So, no, you're right. Salvation is not different for Jews or non-Jews. So Jews do not have a different avenue of salvation than the rest of the world, do they? No. Same avenue, Jesus Christ. Does God force people to fulfill mission against their will? So why is it then that so many Christians think biological genetic Jews have some special role in God's end time? Two premises underlie it. Two premises. One, pardon? Yeah, one, that's one of the premises. So the one premise is that in Bible language, where we find ourselves in the history of human humanity today, that when the Bible talks about being a Jew, many Christians presume it means being a genetic descendant of Abraham, biological. That's what they think it means. 
I'm going to show you that's not what it actually means. It's a wrong premise. Second premise is that the promises that God made to the Jews are assumed to be unconditional. There's no conditions on those promises. So let's consider those two premises. First, did God promise back before there was Abraham, back right after Adam and Eve sinned, back in Genesis 3, did God promise to Adam and Eve and to all of their descendants that a Savior was promised? Yes. God made a promise that a Savior was promised, and that promise that the Savior was going to be for all human beings or just certain segments of society? For the world. For the whole world. God so loved the world. Exactly. Does that mean because God promised to send a Savior for the entire world, for God to love the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that every person in the world is going to be saved? Get your mind around that. There's a promise from God for the whole world, but the whole world doesn't experience the promise. Can God make a promise to a nation? Yes. And they don't experience the promise. For the same reason God makes a promise to every human, but every human doesn't experience the promise because there are conditions to salvation. And that is we must trust him, accept, and participate. Likewise for Israel, God made promises that were conditional in their participation and cooperation. And when Israel refused to participate with Christ, just like an individual who refuses to participate with Christ, they don't experience the promise. So we're in Romans, so let's look back a little bit at Romans. I'm going to read some verses through Romans and see the kind of theme Paul's talking about. We'll start with Romans 2.28. 29, and, and I'll, when, we, when we jump ahead a little bit, I'll tell you what verse we're going to. A man is not a Jew. This is the idea of the first premise. What makes someone a Jew in Bible language? A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Pause right there. In Bible language, a person is a Jew if they have certain genetics or if they have certain change of heart. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we say then? Are we, Paul's referring to the biological Jews, any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Therefore, excuse me, there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then I want to refer you back to Abraham. And who who is Abraham the father of? This is Romans 4, 9 through 12. Abraham believed God and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. When did this take place? Was it before or after Abraham was circumcised? It was before, not after. He was circumcised later and his circumcision was a sign to show that because of his faith, God had accepted him 
as righteous before he had been circumcised. And so Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe in God and are accepted as righteous by him, even though they are not circumcised. He is also the father of those who are circumcised, that is, of those who, in addition to being circumcised, also live the same life of faith that our father Abraham lived before he was circumcised. So what is Paul making the case about when you hear about uh, who is a Jew in, in post-Christ era? Paul is making the case that the Jews are who? Born-again Christians. They're the Jews. Anybody who's had their hearts circumcised, anybody who has the faith of Abraham, anybody who trusts God, anybody who's been reborn, they're the Jews in Bible language. Genetics have no bearing on it. And so one of the great problems you'll see in across the landscape of Christianity, in all denominations, is this inability to, to go past literalism, to see past metaphor, to see past simile, to see past object lessons, to see past parables, to take things concretely and literally. But Paul, I think, and I think I've shown some scriptures, makes a very clear case here. Who was a Jew? This is what a Jew is. So the first premise that those who believe genetic descendants of Israel have some special access, role, or place in salvation is proved false. The second premise is that the promises of God in Old Testament times to Israel will be fulfilled to the genetic descendants of Abraham regardless of their response. Promises without condition. What are the problems with that? If, if it's going to happen with the Jews, even though they don't respond, they don't want it to, they haven't accepted him, they have attitudes like Caiaphas, they have attitudes like Judas, they have attitudes like, like Annas, they have attitudes like that in their heart, but God is going to fulfill those promises anyway. Do we see a problem with that? Absolutely. The freedom the world. Yes. Plus, you know, there's how much of a Jew do you have to be? How much of a Jew do you have to be, right? How deluded are they? How many generations does it carry? Yeah, a good point. And then also it denies scripture. Let's, let's read it. this idea that the nation is somehow fulfilling nationally these promises of God. Also denies what scripture teaches. This is Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned for it. We have an example in Nineveh, don't we? There's a that God, exactly what he said. Keep going. And if it... Another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted. And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended for it. And then what do we read in Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 37 and 38? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you as a as your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. So why were they cast off? Because God didn't want to work with them? Remember, not for salvation. Not for salvation. As a, as a collective corporate group to fulfill mission, to be the evangelist. Can, can this group, who has now rejected the Savior, actually be the people to evangelize the world about the Savior? Can it actually be? 
It cannot be. Does that make sense to you? So this is uh, out of Prophets and Kings. One of the founders of the SDA Church wrote this. In proclaiming the truths of the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, God's church on earth today is fulfilling the ancient prophecy, Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit, Isaiah 27, 6. See, most evangelical Christians take those promises and apply them to the state of Israel today. That is not. It denies what we already read. They're not Jews. Because they haven't accepted Jesus. They haven't had their hearts circumcised. They're not exercising the faith in Christ that Abraham exercised. And only if you do that are you actually a Jew in Bible terms. Therefore, the message they're taking to the world is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They reject him as the Messiah. They reject him as the Savior. And they're not taking the gospel of Jesus to the world. They're not fulfilling this promise. But many evangelicals still apply it to them, thinking literally and concretely. Keep on with the quote. The followers of Jesus in cooperation with heavenly intelligences, are rapidly occupying the waste places of the world. And as the result of their labors, an abundant fruitage of precious souls is developing. Today, as never before, the dissemination of Bible truth by means of a consecrated church is bringing to the sons of men the benefits foreshadowed centuries ago in the promise to Abraham and to all Israel. To God's church on earth in every age, I will bless thee, and thou shalt be a blessing. Genesis 12, 2. This promise of blessing should have been met, this promise of blessing should have met fulfillment in large measure during the centuries following the return of the Israelites from the land of their captivity. It was God's design that the whole earth be prepared for the first advent of Christ, even as today the way is preparing for his second coming. At the end of the years of humiliating exile, God graciously gave to his people, Israel, through Zechariah, the assurance, I am returned into Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts and the holy mountain. And of his people he, will, he said, Behold, I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. These promises were conditional on obedience. The sins that had characterized the Israelites prior to their captivity were not to be repeated. Execute true judgment, the Lord exhorted those who were engaged in rebuilding, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother. Speak ye every man the truth, uh, to his neighbor, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. That's Zechariah 10 uh, and 8. Uh, Zechariah 7, 9 and 10 and 8, 16. Do you see what those quotes of Zechariah were at the end? Love people. Practice the methods of love, the methods of grace, the methods of Jesus Christ. That is, that is how you participate in the promises. So once we replace the false premises... With the truth, we realize that the Jews are in the same boat today as the Gentiles, all sinners, all saved by grace, through what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And thus we seek, as Christians, the Jews of the New Testament, to evangelize the world, regardless of ethnic group, regardless of race, regardless of, of nationality. We all need the same Savior. Amen. Regardless of church denomination. Regardless of church denomination, thank you. Would you agree that within Christianity, as taught in Scripture, there is no place 
for discrimination based on race, nationality, ethnic group, and gender. If you agree, now hold on to your hats, I'm about to meddle. <laughs> then why in the Seventh-day Adventist Church do we have one division of the world church, you know, in the world church, how the Seventh-day Adventist Church is organized, we have local conferences, organized into union conferences, organized into divisions, organized into a world conference. Okay? North American division is where we are right now in the Southern Union in the Georgia Cumberland Conference. Okay? That's where we are in this organizational system. Why is it that only one division of all the divisions of the world has conferences segregated by race? And that's in the Southern Union. We have conferences that are run by whites, and we have conferences explicitly set up to be run by blacks. Can you make a Bible case for segregation of Christians by race? Absolutely not. Then why has the Seventh-day Adventist Church done it? Because the Seventh-day Adventist Church was founded... We have to go to black churches. That they are, they're welcome. They welcome white people. We can go to their churches. That's not really the point, is it? The point is our church is segregated by race. It doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. But, but it is. And so, but why? We need to understand why. Because the Seventh-day Adventist Church officially became a church in 1863 in North America. That's where it was founded. North America, United States of America, in 1863. What was happening in the United States in 1863? The Civil War. The Civil War was one of the core issues in the Civil War. It was a fight over slavery. Exactly. So what would have happened... So, so what was, first off, if you understand that was the culture, that's where the church is being founded in the United States in a civil war over, to a great degree, race and slavery. What was the mindset of white people towards blacks in America in 1863? Particularly in the southern states, but even in the northern states. What was the mindset? Equality? What would have happened then... If the Seventh-day Adventist church, who wants to take the gospel to all people, would have had black preachers try to go into white churches and preach, what would have happened? Would the gospel have been advanced? No. Would there have been lynchings? Yes. So, to advance the gospel, the church made separate conferences not to be exclusionary, but to open avenues for the gospel to go to all the people because avenues were shut down by the hardness of the hearts and the prejudices of people in the society. And the church had to meet them where they were and provide avenues to reach those who the whites didn't think worthy of reaching. Does this make sense? That's where the history of this comes down to us. Now if you understand that, you understand what the apostles were doing in the New Testament when they described women's roles in the church. They were not setting up God's standard for how the church should run any more than the Adventist church was setting up God's standard by making racial. They were dealing with the prejudices of the Roman world towards women. Go back 2,000 years ago and think how women were considered. Women were believed to be less intelligent, have weaker moral worth and moral character, less capable than men. And thus they needed guardians. And this came down through thousands of years. Women throughout most of the uh, history of the world, a daughter was given away by her father to whomever her father thought was best for her. She could not own property. She could not 
It was because she was a woman. She couldn't. She didn't have the intelligence to do these things. And so the New Testament church is dealing with the hardness of hearts and therefore setting up protocols just like the Adventist church did in 1863. But it would be erroneous to conclude that because they gave those guidelines to advance the gospel in that world with mindsets and beliefs so deeply wrong about gender roles, it would be wrong for us to include that's God's ideal. And so, it all today, it's all determined by the condition of the hearts. The more Christ-like, the more love, the more restoration to righteousness, the more equality and unity is seen. Galatians 3, 6, 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or descendants, Jews, and heirs according to the promise. Again, this is what makes us a Jew. But the harder your heart today, the more selfish, the more fearful, the more controlling of others, then the more biased you are, the more prejudiced you are, the more bigoted you are, and the more you want to see segregation and discrimination based on race and gender. And I say that to anybody in this church who thinks that you should separate and segregate based on gender. Well, let me ask you something. God known the end from the beginning. Why, knowing this is going to be a problem in the future, why didn't Christ choose a woman to be one of his disciples? Regardless of what the things were back then. Well, he wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't a disciple one of the twelve. Then why didn't he choose a Greek? Why didn't he come as a woman? <laughs> why didn't he choose a non-Jew? <laughs> then only Jews should be leaders in the church. We should only have Jewish people as leaders in the church, by your logic then. Only Jewish people, because Christ only chose twelve Jews. So we can only have Jewish people and leaders in the church. That doesn't work either, does it? Sunday's lesson. I'll leave that one with you to cogitate on. Uh, First paragraph says, Legalism can come in many forms, some more subtle than others. Those who look to themselves for their good deeds, to their diet, to how strict they keep the Sabbath, to all the bad things they don't do, or to the good things that they have achieved, even with the best of intentions, are falling into the trap of legalism. Every moment of our lives, we must keep before us the holiness of God in contrast to our sinfulness. That's the surest way to protect ourselves from the kind of thinking that leads people into seeking their own righteousness, which is contrary to the righteousness of Christ. I think the first sentence is quite true. Legalism comes in many forms. My view is what they described here is, the not, is a form of legalism. It's not the most common form, though. The most common form of legalism, in my view, is the penal legal theologies, where God was legally required to send Jesus to pay our legal penalty that we then claim as our legal payment so we can be legally adjusted in our records and have our names come up in the judgment. We can be legally pardoned. That's legalism. Did you hear all the legal, 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 legal? That's legalism. It's just a different form of it. It's not the plan of salvation, which is, think of all the scriptures that describe the plan of salvation. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. Circumcision is a heart by the Spirit, born again, 
Heart of stone removed, heart of flesh put in. We have the mind of Christ. The old has died, the new has come. It's all regenerational, recreational. That's the plan of salvation. The lesson asks us to read Romans 10, 1 through 4. This is out of the NIV. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, and their zeal, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Thoughts about that? What do you think it means Christ is the end of the law? Fulfilled. The goal. The goal, the fulfillment. Other thoughts? The author. The author. He's also the beginning of the law. The beginning of the law? Okay, he is, but that's not what the text said, but you're right. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it says in Revelation. Yeah. The end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. So, so how do we explain that? Some would say because he fulfilled what the law required, and the law required a death penalty. He paid the perfect death penalty by having a perfect sinless life, and therefore he fulfilled what the law required. He's the ultimate example. The ultimate example of the law. Well... Do you, do you step back and ask the question first, what law? How do we understand law? Law of love. <laughs> Design law, law of love, the principle, okay. Yeah, so would you say then that Christ completely restored God's law back into the species human, in his own humanity? He rewrote by his own decision-making. In his own human life, he lived out the perfect law of God. So I'll read those passages from the Remedy. Brothers and sisters, my heart's great desire and constant request to God is that the Israelites, the genetic descendants of Abraham, will accept the truth and be healed. I can assure you from my own experience that they are zealous to serve God, but their zeal is based on the wrong concept of God, and they don't really know him, as they don't really know him. And because they don't know him, his goodness, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, love, and his free gift of healing and restoration, they have sought to please him by working to create their own cure. And thus they have refused God's free remedy. In Christ, God's design, law, is complete. So that there may be perfection of character and healing of mind and heart for all who trust him. Do you see the design law woven in there? This is what I think is actually happening. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Um, and we're going into Monday's lesson. The lesson asks us to read... Romans eleven seven through 10. This is out of the NIV. What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. As David said, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And then the lesson asks, does God blind people's eyes to prevent them from seeing light that would lead them to salvation? Wait a second. You guys don't believe scripture? God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see. My Bible said it. This is the exact same thinking when people go, well, when you confess your sins, they're erased out of the record books of heaven and there's no memory of them because God says when you confess your sins, I will remember them no more. And therefore, there is no, there's no memory in heaven of sin that was confessed. That's the same logic that goes, well, therefore, God must make people blind so they can't see the truth. 
Seek or search, so you may find. What does the passage actually mean? What law lens do you see it through? If you're seeing God as an imperial dictator who makes edicts and makes things happen, then you read it very literally, and God, God did it. God used it. He, he, some are predetermined. God said, nope, I'm not giving you a chance. I'm blinding you. And I've got to do that because I've got to show my justice, and some of you just have to be punished so I can show that I'm really just in punishing sin. Yes? Could you equate it to what we find in Exodus with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Did he actually actively harden his heart? No. He revealed himself. And that was ultimately Pharaoh's own conclusion. Yeah, that, well said. Exactly. God revealed the truth. Pharaoh rejected the truth. And in that process, when you reject truth, the heart hardens. So, and I, I like where you're going. That's the design law stuff. Yes? Doesn't Romans 1 kind of lay the groundwork for this by saying, as they continue to reject God, he gave them up. And then these other things happened. This is the way they became blind. They're Starting in verse 18 in Romans 1, they, they did not think the truth of God worthwhile to retain. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They made images with their own hands. And therefore, verse 24, 26, 28, God gave them up. God let them go. God gave them And all these terrible things happened. So well said, well foundation, yeah. So let me share those, those verses from the remedy and see what you think. What then does this mean? That Israel as a nation did not achieve the reunification with God they sought, except for a few individuals? What Israel sought to earn by working to induce God to be gracious actually caused them to misunderstand God, become self-sufficient and arrogant, and fail to obtain restoration with God. But those who trusted God based on the truth as revealed in Jesus obtained God's gracious gift of healing and restoration. The others, instead of being healed and restored, were hardened, as it is written. When they rejected truth, God gave them over to a dull mind, eyes trained to no longer recognize truth, and ears tuned to no longer hear truth. And this goes on to this very day. As David said, May what they rely on for strength and sustenance be revealed as a snare and a trap, the actual cause of their stumbling and the source of their pain. May the result of their rejection of truth damage their minds so that they can no longer comprehend. May their characters be so twisted by persistent rebellion that they will not reform. So the question is, why is so much of Scripture, if, if, if it's really this design law stuff, as we teach in here, consequence of our own choice, rejecting God's methods, which harden and change us, if that's really what's happening, why does so much of Scripture sound, and is it worded, like God is doing it? Is that not a fair question? When your children were small, did any of the parents in this room have rules for them to brush their teeth, also not go out in the street and play? Do you have rules like that? Okay, what, what did you do? What did you tell your children would happen if they disobey? If they don't brush their teeth, if they go out in the street and play, what were you going to do? External punishment. Did you threaten a consequence? Yes. Time out, spanking something. Is your punishment that you threatened to the child the real problem of disobeying? But in their immaturity, you know, the real problem, of course, is breaking design law, second law of thermodynamics, teeth decay, going out in the street and getting hit by a car, and laws of physics being violated, and their bodies are being destroyed. That's the real problem. But in their immaturity, they cannot comprehend the real problem. Now follow me here, of playing in the street or so forth. So you as a parent, step in, stand in as the source of the pain and the suffering. You take that burden on your shoulder. 
You allow your reputation to be seen in a certain way. You risk your children becoming afraid of you. Why do you do this? Why would you step into that place and and threaten them with punishment, knowing they're going to think that the problem is coming from you? This is exactly what God did through human history. He stepped in, took the responsibility on his shoulders, allowed himself to be seen as the one that was inflicting these things because we were so immature, having accepted the false law construct throughout human history, believing God's law works like ours, that we couldn't see what it was doing to our character, searing our conscience, hardening our hearts. And God stepped in until we could grow up. Now, think this through. That's part of the problem. When we grow up, we all had parents, we had parents that did this for us. Right, But when we grow up and see God's law in its true light, we are like the children who have grown up and realize the reason for brushing the teeth and realize the reason for not playing in the, in the street. And with those new reasons, understands we have a whole new perspective of love and appreciation for our parents who went to such risk to protect us. And thus we come to see God and go, thank you, God, for what you did through human history. But you can't get where I just went as long as you still hold to the lie about God's law. Tuesday's lesson, ask us to read Romans 11, 11 through 15. This is out of uh, the NIV. Again, I ask, did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And the lesson asks, what great hope does Paul present in this passage? What great hope? The return of Israel. The return of Israel as a national entity or is there this, this, this the people of Israel? What is God's plan that you hear Paul describing here? How is God rejecting the, the evangelistic mission that was given to Israel and saying, you are not going to be my evangelist anymore. I'm giving the evangelistic mission to this new group of people. How is God's plan there somehow working to reach the Jews? According to this passage. Wouldn't it be given the Jews an example? Yes, an example of what? I like where you're going. Example of what? Think through through design law. Think through laws of health. How about if if the whole world's HIV infected? And God is a remedy for that. And we're all suffering with the symptoms of HIV, various ways. And if you know uh, 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 HIV that is not treated, ends up with AIDS. And when people get AIDS, advanced immune deficiency syndrome, that they get various opportunistic infections. And those infections look different. One person could have Carposi sarcoma. One person could have uh, pneumocystis corona uh, pneumonia. Another person could have a cytomegalovirus uh, retinitis. And uh, so they, they look different. It's all the same problem. And so how horrible would it be on an AIDS ward if those with the um, blindness from the cytomegalovirus, were criticizing those coughing with the pneumonia. And those coughing with the pneumonia were criticizing those with those lesions. And those with the lesions are criticizing those who are going blind. They're all suffering the same condition. This is what happens in, in Christianity. We all have the same condition. We criticize people who have different symptoms. Oh, that, they got, he's got an addiction. 
He's got a porn problem. It's all the same problem. Manifest differently. And now there's, there's, there's antivirals that are available for free. And we call a group of people, let's say the Jews, to give them the antivirals and ask them to go tell everybody else, here's antivirals that can cure. But instead they go, we don't want your antivirals. We'll, we'll develop our own. We'll get our own pills. And they, and they start taking jelly beans instead. And they have no benefit. And they get sicker and sicker. And they get worse and worse. And so we bring some non-Jews in and say, here's antivirals. They start taking the antivirals. And their symptoms go away. The pneumonia stops. Their vision gets better. The, the, the lesions go. They get healthy. Now, if that were actually literally happening, would it, would it perhaps induce the people over here dying of all the symptoms to look at these people, how healthy they are? Maybe they've got a cure we don't know about. That's what Paul's talking about. That if we partake of Jesus Christ as he designed and experience the regeneration of heart, the, live the life of love, the life of peace, the life of joy that comes from, a, from God's principles being written in the heart, then our, we become lights to the world. They see something different in us, and we draw them. That's what Paul's talking about. But, but you know, throughout history, I'm going to jump. I'm not going to read some of these things in here. I'm going to jump instead. Make may come back to Wednesday. I'm going to jump down and said to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson, because throughout history, have the Jews looked to Christians and seen such a beautiful way of living that they go, I'd like to be like them. Hardly. In fact, it says in Thursday's lesson, no doubt through the centuries had the Christian church treated the Jews better, many more might have come to the Messiah. Well, I was listening to Christian radio, and they were talking about evangelizing in Israel to Jews today. And one of the... Uh, one of the um, uh, evangelist, pastors, uh, talking, uh, said he was uh, over in Israel talking to a Jewish professor, teaches theology in one of the universities over there. And he was witnessing Christ to him, and the professor asked him one question. He says, I'll ask you one question. Was Martin Luther, is, is Martin Luther your brother? Now, before you answer the question, because um, I'm going to ask you, what would you say if he said to you, was Martin Luther the reformer? Founder of Lutheranism. Is he your brother? Before you answer, let me just read to you from Luther's works. This is from Luther. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, curses, and blasphemies are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that, that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. Do you hear the Nazis in this? Yeah, I would say this sounds this, this is where they got a lot of this, from, from Luther. Seventh, remember, Luther was German. Yes, but other countries are equally culpable. But let me, let me finish. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail 
an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses, and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if we are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, children, servants, cattle, etc., then let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, and eject them forever from our country. There's the other countries. They were ejected from England at the time of Edward I, and they weren't readmitted until Cromwell. Yeah, so there, there's the other countries you're mentioning. And when we say ejected, we're talking about their houses burned. Yep, yep, yep. And driven out. And so, now, with a little history and perspective, because I'm sure this Jewish professor is thinking this, what do you say when he says, was Martin Luther your brother? Was Martin Luther your brother? Now, remember a great controversy. One of the pillars of the Christian church. Do you feel trapped all of a sudden? Do you feel uncomfortable? What would you say? So what are people 500 years from now going to say about us and our stupidities? You know, he was a man of his time. You, know, you see, I, I reject that. I accept it, but I also reject it. Because um, throughout history, God has always had his people. And just because we live in a certain time, I don't think it excuses us for, for rejecting the character of Christ. You look at Christ's time, the vast majority of people rejected Christ, but then look, there are Stephen. Where'd Stephen come from? I'm just saying that Luther was blind in his blindness in the area of the Jews because he was a man of his time. He didn't perceive it. I'm going to go farther than you. Yes, yes, he was blind for sure. He was very... But you're standing there with the Jewish professor trying to witness Jesus Christ to him, and he's got the question before you, is Martin Luther your brother? You can't defend Luther, there's no way. So, but the question, is Martin Luther your brother? What do you say? Do you say, well, Martin Luther was a very sick and twisted brother in need of much healing and transformation? <laughs> yeah, okay, so which is kind of what I just said, yeah. Or do you say, um, Martin Luther is not my savior, Jesus Christ. Excuse me, Martin Luther is not my savior, the Jewish teacher Jesus Christ is. Do you say that to the Jewish professor? Yes. Do you say... Martin Luther is not my savior. Uh, excuse me. Martin Luther failed to represent Jesus. Jesus is the standard, not Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a sinner in need of much heart transformation before he could rightly represent Jesus. I'm telling, teaching you. I'm talking, talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about Martin Luther. Who, what you just described in his history shows how much he needed Jesus. But that still doesn't answer the question. What do you think about what Martin Luther wrote? I think it's horrible. It's horrible. Do you realize the person who wrote those things is the person who came up with penal substitution theology? He's the one who invented penal substitution theology. Get your mind up. This is his mindset. This is his dark worldview. This is his culture. This is his corruption. Do you see in Luther's words regarding the Jews, did you hear an authoritarianism, an imperial mindset that uses coercion and rejects the law of liberty? Absolutely. Did you hear it? Martin Luther is reacting to Catholicism in ways, and his language reflects his time as well. It, that, I, I don't disagree. And what does it reflect? Imperialism, authoritarianism, a, a, a dictator God construct. Reacting purgatory. Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've mentioned that in here before, and I'll mention it again. His penal substitution theology was designed to reject purgatory. That's right, but it's still all based on his considered presumed lie that God's law works like our law. He's an Augustinian monk. Yes, yes. Well, you can make that same 
discussion, going back to Martin Luther, you can look at a lot of Christians today, how they treat homosexuality, how they treat um, other religions that don't necessarily agree with them. Same kind of persecution, same kind of hate, same kind of everything. Yes, thank you for that. I agree. And the root, and I want people to see the root, because we're at the 500-year anniversary this year of the Reformation. And, and, and many Christian groups, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church, has put out a lot of articles defending Martin Luther's theology and promoting Martin Luther's theology as the standard. And I'm going to suggest to you it is not the standard. It is a step out of certain distortions. Many errors and created new errors, but what he taught was the primacy of the Scripture and the priesthood of all believers, and those two things are the beginning of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Is he a brother? He kind of taught those things. You understand that Luther's Bible did not include James, did not include um, Jude, did not include Hebrews, and did not include... You can't expect a man of 1517 to have all the truth when he comes of a tremendous way. I don't expect a man of 2017 to have all the truth. God only has all the truth. None of us have all the truth. No, I don't expect that at all. I'm making the case here today that, that we are 500 years from Luther. We should not be promoting Luther's theology. Okay? Luther's theology is not the standard. But that's what is held up as the standard still. It's defended, it's promoted, it's held to, and it's wrong. We've gone back to it sometimes. Yes. And this is, not the, this is not the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return. Luther's theology is not. Absolutely not. And let's just talk about some of the corruptions that you get. You were, uh, were mentioning some of these things a moment ago about in society. Uh, you know, this week, sadly, this is the, I, I got some emails from some people. There was a suicide in one of the people who just recently graduated from College Academy. And uh, it's been reported to me that some of the faculty... We're telling their students that because this young adolescent, this late adolescent, committed suicide, he's like Judas and can't be saved. Grief. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, if you use that logic, I've got a blog that'll come out on our, our website on Monday. Should come out Monday on our Facebook page, and it's uh, going to go into this in great detail. But if you use the logic that because Judas can't be saved because he committed suicide, then you have to conclude that if you commit mass murder while committing suicide like Samson, then you go to heaven. Think Samson. Samson was reconciled to God, given supernatural strength, and how did he die? He died by basically being the first suicide bomber. Okay? Now, that's terrible theology. It's a corruption of reality. Judas is not lost because he commits suicide. Judas is lost because he rejected Jesus Christ. Let's be very clear on that. Samson died by suicide as well, but he's not lost. Suicide is, uh, but why do you get this? Why do people, why would they say this? Because they have Martin Luther's understanding. Sin, they, 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 but, they have, but they have Martin Luther's understanding that God's law is a system of rules that works like ours. And if you do a bad deed, well, the bad deed is you, you committed self-murder. And if you've committed self-murder, then you're not alive to go to Jesus and ask him to pardon that. So legally, you can't get pardoned for it. So God is now required by the law to punish you. This is all primitive, childish thinking. When you actually come back to design law stuff, you understand, first off, that all nature groans under the weight of sin, it says in Romans 8. And that suicide is almost always, almost always a symptom of a problem and not an act of sin. Almost always it's a symptom of some 
mental health problem, some emotional problem, some situational stress, some, but the people who commit suicide find themselves in a place of such pain of some kind, either it's physical, psychological, emotional, mental pain, and, and they get sucked into the pain to the point that they lose all perspective and they lose hope that the pain will ever go away, and suicide becomes their escape from pain. And so when I deal with suicidal patients, I always offer hope that their pain will go away and clarify that what they almost always, I was rarely have I ever had somebody who really wanted to die. They, when I clarify it with them, if they had a choice, they just want the pain to go away and they'd be happy again. And once we reframe it like that and begin working, we identify the, the source of their pain and we start putting real solutions in to bring healing, then the suicide stuff goes away. But sadly, some people get trapped and they don't realize there's other avenues and they die by suicide. That is not an eternal loss. It depends on whether they had rejected Christ like Judas or they've already accepted and were participating in his grace, but they had some illness that overtook them. Yes. When you read the first paragraph of the lesson, at the beginning there was the sentence uh, referring to Jesus who died as a substitute for sinners everywhere. I was expecting you to say something about substitution. Is, did Jesus die as a substitute for sinners, and how does that relate to Martin Luther's promoting penal substitution? So, again, the, the question for me, I, 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 and I teach substitutionary theology. It's just what law lens do you look through? If you're in the penal law and human-imposed law, then he became our substitute to take our punishment, to be punished by God, to pay the legal penalty, and that's how he's our substitute. And then we get vicarious legal application to our record books, and all that, I believe, is a lie and a distortion. However, if you believe that we have a condition, you know, when Adam sinned in Eden, God didn't change, his law didn't change, the condition of humankind changed. And Christ, he who knew no sin, this is Second Corinthians 5, became sin for us, their substitution. So that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our sin condition upon himself in order to heal and restore righteousness in mankind. There was no legal process at all because we could not do it for ourselves. Thus he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to understand the other reasons uh, what he had to do, Jesus Christ... Um, it says uh, he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.14. It says in James chapter 1 that we're tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires are both true. Christ assumed a humanity that was capable of tempting him from within. In Gethsemane, we see his agonizing emotions. He is tempted by his humanity to do what? To save self. This is an act of selfishness. This is what he's being tempted. Not externally, Internally, that's the human fallen nature, a selfish nature. Christ destroyed that human nature and established perfect other-centered love. No one can take my life, I give it freely. And at the cross, when he gave himself perfectly in love, he fixed the condition. He eradicated the infection and established a new humanity. Thus, he became the second Adam that we can now be grafted into and we see from the Spirit no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, a new heart with new motives that are other centered. So he became our substitute for healing and curing, not for paying legal penalties. That's my view. Other questions? Yes. Before you leave today, please tell us what you'd say about Martin Luther, since he's your brother. <laughs> I would have said what I said. Martin Luther was a very sick and twisted and corruptive heart person who was seeking to be healed through Jesus Christ. In that sense, he was a brother, but he wasn't a leader and he wasn't a representative of Christ. Amen. 
Yeah. Any other questions? These are really good questions. Do you think, due to the distorted picture and understanding of sin, it, it has really tainted and twisted our understanding of those verses that you just you just pointed out that Christ was tempted in all ways, but yet did not sin? We equate sin to being acts of behavior rather than a breach of trust. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, my reading and talking to people hold the other view. It's always about the behavior. It's always about the deeds. It's always about the acts. It's always about the recorded records. You've got your angel following you to check all the deeds off. But that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance. That's man's law. Man's law is all about the behavior. God looks on the heart. And for God, it's all about the motive. That's why you can have somebody who lies, Rahab, in the hall of faith. Whoa, that's not a good behavior. But what's her heart attitude? Her heart attitude is self-sacrificial. She put herself in harm's way. She was willing to put her life down to protect others, even though she was very immature and didn't understand God's methods and, and ways of going about it, it was an act of self-sacrifice. Thus, she had an act of faith. But penal people can't see that. Same thing we've talked about before. It's in, it's in the new book. Uh, sexual relations between David and Bathsheba. When were they no longer sin for David? You ask the level four uh, imperial law people that, they can't answer it. Well, they'll say when he repents. And I go, I thought repentance is turning away from. So if I have a porn problem and I ask Jesus to forgive me and repent, then I can actually go back and have porn for the rest of my life and it's not sin anymore? Because he went back to Bathsheba and had the rest of life. Oh, well, when he married her. So you're saying if I go to a culture today like Saudi Arabia where polygamy is legal, as long as I'm in that culture, then God says polygamy is fine too. He doesn't really have one man, one woman marriage. That's not really his his, his plan. It's It's not really sin if I take more than one wife as long as the culture says it's okay. Do any one of their arguments fail? Because they focus on behavior. All of them fail. But when you understand design law, then you understand that when David repented, repentance is not turning away from an act. It's a change of heart so that selfishness is eradicated and love is restored within. And David then had a responsibility to restore to Bathsheba what he took from her. And in that culture, in that time, in that era, he not only took her husband, he took her name, he took her station, he took her livelihood, he took her property, he took the person who loved her and poured affection into her. She would have probably ended up on the street in a prostitute. And so if David really had a heart that was going to be godlike, he just couldn't turn away from her and leave her on the street, which is what the penal people would do. Just let her do her and make and more, more sin and more problems. He had to take her, and in that culture, marry her, gives her her name back, gives her her station back, gives her a place to live back. Uh, and he loves her, gives her love back, and cherishes her. And object lesson, because we know Israel is an object lesson, a theater to spectacle to angels to men, when his sexual intimacy with her was out of selfishness, I'm going to exploit her, I'm going to take advantage, I'm the king, they had a child that died, selfishness leads to death. When his intimacy with her was out of other-centered love to restore to her, they had a child of wisdom, Solomon. Really profound stuff. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a creator God who runs his universe on love, on truth, on freedom. We have uh, had so many ideas that we have held for so long that are really not the most efficient in representing you. We ask that the spirit of truth will come. Let Christ be the standard that we hold up. Let us... Embrace his methods and principles and may his character be restored within us and may we go out into this world and represent the truth about you 
so that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.